But as believers, I think the tone and the conversation is now changing to what do we do about it? And I think what we do about it has to start with the example of uh, William Seymour. And it has to start with, yes, there are prejudiced people in the church. It is true. Yes, there may be even be racist people in the church. But if we can begin to see each other as brothers and sisters and start there, um, I think that we can be the voice of healing. Well, hey, everyone, it's Jason here, and I want to welcome you to another episode of the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. Today's guest is Pastor Ben Carouget from Brandon, Manitoba. He's the pastor of Cities Church, a church plant a few years old that's really having an impact in the city and beyond. Ben is such a compelling leader, and our conversation really started a few weeks ago when we just jumped on the phone. We were connected through mutual friends, and uh, we just chatted about life and ministry. And when I found out about his story, his heart for the city that he's reaching and our nation and his convictions and perspective on so much of what is happening around us right now. I knew that we needed to get him on the podcast. So he was so kind to agree to do an interview really quickly. And then we turned it around fast so we could share it with you today. And all of the interviews we're doing this summer are made possible because of sponsors and partners that have come on board to help serve church leaders like yourselves. And so today I want to highlight two of them. First, Briarcrest, they're doing incredible work to shift their programming in the midst of COVID. You should check them out online to find all their fall offerings for new programs and resources there. And also I want to thank Compassion Canada. Compassion Canada loves working with church leaders to help the most vulnerable children around the world. And we're so honored that they've partnered with us to make these resources available for you. And you can help us invest back into them by finding out more about the work they're doing. Hey, before we just jump into this episode, I wanted to make a note specifically about this conversation. Actually, this is a note about all of our conversations is our commitment as the Canadian Church Leaders podcast is not to edit our guests. You know, we as a podcast, uh, we're really committed to unity in the Christian church and articulating as clear as possible the Christian faith and what we share in common. But we're also really committed to actually facilitating a conversation that allows people within the church who maybe hold different theological distinctives to give voice to how those theological distinctives even inform the ministry that they do. I think so often we find ourselves in deep silos uh, where we end up just hearing voices that agree with us. And the result is we just miss out. We miss out on empathy for others. We also miss out on what we might be able to learn. And I think in the conversation today, I was really aware in two ways. First, you know, you know, Ben, our guest, is an incredible leader and they're having a ton of fruit. And, uh, you know, for, for a big chunk of our conversation, he was talking about how, you know, a theological distinctive has really informed a lot of their strategy and the way that they're approaching it. And I know for a bunch of listeners, you'd be like, oh man, I might not agree with that. I might not do it that way. And I, we thought, man, do we, do we edit any of those parts? I just thought, no, that would be such a shame for you to miss that. Because uh, I think it gives us an insight into what's happening at this dynamic church in Brandon, Manitoba. But then also, uh, I was just so grateful for Ben as a first-generation immigrant from Rwanda to help us understand how he's experiencing this moment around heightened awareness, around racial tension and racial injustice, and asked him to give us some best practices. And I found it really helpful. But I also realized just by having that conversation, there's going to be a variety of different opinions in our listeners. And some might say, man, I wouldn't have put it that way. 
or I would have handled the conversation that way. And others of you might receive and say, that's exactly what I've been trying to say. So I realize that there's such a variety of voices and we're really committed to bringing honest, authentic conversations to you because we want to have a legitimate conversation. We think we're better for it. So with all of that preface, let's jump in today's conversation, which left me so impacted with my friend, Ben. Well, hey, Ben, thank you so much for hanging out today. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, give us a window into the world that you're zooming in from right now. It is a basement room that I have turned into an office in a 30-year-old church building. It's got ugly red carpet. And uh, basically, other than that, it's totally empty. So I love yeah. it. You took the most literal approach that question possible it's so good uh dude well i'm so thankful that you made time to hang out uh you're you're just one of the guys that i was so excited to introduce in a lot of ways to a lot of our listeners um the work you're doing in manitoba and just the story of your life is is really significant and i think important and last week you and i jumped on the phone just just to catch up because we got a lot of mutual friends and my father-in-law and johnny lambert and the team at arc and so i just wanted to catch up with you and then we chatted for i don't know was an hour or so right. and then afterwards i was like oh man i wish we just had recorded that so this is going to be my attempt to bring us back to that conversation and uh are you up for us going like way back to to tell your story because i just think it so helps understand just how God's wired you and the passion you live for and the presence and zest of life you've got. And so take us way back to uh, yeah, those early years of your life and then ultimately what brought you to Canada. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm from a country called Rwanda. It's a tiny little country in East Africa. And uh, I was born in France uh, while my parents were going to seminary there. And I'm the fourth out of five children. Um, my parents are both Anglican ministers and they went to school in Europe. Then they moved back to Rwanda where they were born, where they're from. And we lived there for the first, you know, few years of my life. And, uh, in 1994, there was a genocide in Rwanda that claimed the lives of almost a million people in a matter of about three months. And in that war, in that genocide, uh, about 80% of my family members were killed, including my dad. And then uh, we were refugees for a couple of years. We went to Tanzania uh, after that. And then after Tanzania, we settled for several months in Kenya. And the whole time, my mom was trying to get us to immigrate to uh, a Western country, uh, somewhere in Europe, preferably. And because we had friends in Europe, uh, my parents both haven't gone to seminary in France and England, we were trying to immigrate to England. But uh, at the time, there was, in the mid-90s, there was a lot of unrest in Africa. It wasn't just Rwanda. A lot of countries were experiencing unrest, and there's a lot of civil war and strife going on. So kind of like it was in 2011, 2012, the European countries were inundated with refugees. And so when we were trying to immigrate from Kenya and find a safe place to call home, uh, they weren't really accepting any more new refugees, and it was difficult to get out of Africa. Mm -hmm. So we were kind of stuck in Nairobi, capital city of Kenya, and uh, trying to find a way out. And my mom did not know what to do. And uh, my my mom's life and the life of her children, we were actually still in danger because the people who sought my parents' lives in, in Rwanda were looking for us in Kenya as well. So uh, unbeknownst to us, my mom didn't say much about his children, obviously. But unbeknownst mm -hmm. to us, it was a, a, a precious situation. But... Um, by the amazing grace of God, and that's the only way that I can really frame this next part. 
There was a small group of uh, old ladies in downtown Winnipeg at St. Matthew's Anglican Church that had a refugee committee, and they were uh, just looking for refugees to help. And so the story of my family, because uh, my mom and dad were Anglican ministers, that our story had kind of circulated that there was this uh, single mom who had lost her husband in the genocide, had five kids, and was looking for a safe place to land. That story uh, circulated around the Anglican circles. This small group of ladies in St. Matthew's Anglican Church in Winnipeg uh, heard about us and decided they were going to sponsor us, which is amazing. A single mom with five kids um, to sponsor us means that we are their responsibility once we arrive in Canada. And so they they did that. It was crazy. Uh, you know, every time I tell the story, I tell the story now more than I've done before. And when I look back at it, I still can't believe it. It's mm. really shocking that they did that. But they did that, and then in 1996, uh, October, we landed in Winnipeg. And uh, my older siblings had experienced winter before because uh, we were living in England and France, but I was just a kid when we left uh, Europe. So it was really my first experience with winter and snow. And then that spring, we had what was called the flood of the century here in Manitoba. So that was uh, my introduction to Canada. And uh, <laughs> I got I so many like refugee stories, like first experiences running through my head right now and trying to skip them all. But uh, it, it was an amazing experience. And that's how we landed in Canada. And, and then we grew up in Winnipeg. Oh, bro. Well, I'm, I'm so thankful that you um, share that story. I didn't know those elements of your story when we first chatted last week. And, you know, you, you're so kind to tell it. And it just seems so significant. And it almost feels like just to brush past just just the miraculous nature of it, but also just how tragic and profound it is. And it's almost like just so aware of the conversation around race happening around us right now. And then for you to have experienced in your childhood, just such extreme pronounced racial injustice. And I just wonder how that backdrop to your life um, is just informed the way in which you're leading a church, the way in which you're preaching Jesus and the way in which you're making disciples. I just wonder, like, as you try to connect the dots, like obviously it informs everything, but as you look at that story that you just shared and you're living that out, just curious how that's really defined and set apart kind of the ministry work that you feel called to even today. That's a great question. And I think after my dad was killed in the genocide, the, the next, so I was about six years old at the time, the next 14, 15 years of my life was that pain just taking root in a very strong way and then really beginning to express itself in what I think were um, potentially very destructive mindsets. Um, and then the next seven or eight or nine years after that was uh, God beginning to bring healing uh, into mm. my life. And then I would say the last year or two, and you know, I turned 30 a couple of years ago, and that was a big moment for me. Um, so I would say since then, I feel like life is different, and I'm now beginning to walk out the benefit of that healing to other people. So um, I can even say the first bunch of years in ministry, uh, I was ministering, but also uh, healing and mm. uh, trying to process that. And then my mom passed away uh, in 2014, uh, from stomach cancer. And so 
that actually was a very difficult time. It unleashed all the things that um, I'd held at bay since I was a kid. And it was horrible. But uh, looking back, I can see that God was saying, you know what, let's take this opportunity to take it all out. Let's mm. not leave anything under the surface. Let's not, let's make sure that, you know, when you're 35, 36, it doesn't all erupt. Let's just take this very painful time in your life to lay it all out there so we can deal with all of it. And then, you know, you can enter your 30s uh, from a place of much greater health. Hmm. One of the things that you explained to me, like just how many, just the lives that you and your siblings are living, like just incredible. Like you're not the only one in ministry and it just seems like your siblings are just making such an impact where they are. And I just want to just take a moment and just honor your parents and just the legacy that they have in you. And, uh, you know, Canada um, and the world are reaping the benefits of their investment, their sacrifice. Um, you know, they obviously studying theology and then leading a church had a dream about making disciples in Rwanda and then around the world. And just to see that legacy lived out and uh, it just gives me great hope that there'll be some sort of perspective from eternity where there'll be some sort right. of just seeing the whole picture and all the tragedy Absolutely. and all the brokenness and the way that God is just doing this redemptive work. Just That's amazing. Awesome. So just want to honor your parents. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, just as you were talking about healing, I couldn't help but just think, and this is every time I, I, this podcast makes me feel so vulnerable because I have thoughts and I'm like, I wonder if other pastors wrestle with the same thing. And now should I say it out loud or just keep it in my head? But if I'm honest as a pastor, sometimes there are people's experiences that show up that feel so, so big. And like, I go, I can't help. And like, I feel like almost intimidated to enter into the story. Mm -hmm. And just to hear you talk about God's healing work in your life, I think it, what it's really doing in my heart right now, even as we're chatting, is just giving me hope that God can heal and restore the deepest wounds. And I just would love to hear you speak to that reality of like how intimidating it can be sometimes for pastors to enter into brokenness, even their own brokenness, right? Mm -hmm. um, but just mm -hmm. the testimony you've been given about God doing a healing work um, yeah, I'd just love to hear you speak to that a little bit. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I think I hated, I hated how broken I was for the vast majority of my life. I really hated it. And, uh, and you know, I, I really didn't want to see that that's what God wanted to use. You know, I wanted him to use my intellect. I wanted him to use my discipline. I wanted him to use my, uh, faith, but I didn't want him to use my brokenness. And I think that, it just took some time to surrender to that. And, you know, the Bible is so clear about that. We all know those verses, you know, yeah, my grace is sufficient in your weakness. And we all say that stuff. But, you know, we're thinking, oh, my, my, my grace is sufficient and it's a little thing i got to work on and whatever. But actually, it's my strength that God really wants to use when uh, it's actually not. It's our weaknesses that he wants to use. Now, I think the flip side of that is you can't remain broken and use that as an excuse and say, well, God uses weakness. Uh, I believe that God uses weakness by bringing healing from that weakness. And so what I would say is when I was still in my season of overwhelming pain, and I would say that's late teens, early 20s, and then mid-20s as well, which is scary to think about how, how much pain I was in while leading. But um, when I was in that season, uh, I was not really able to access the power in my weakness hmm. because I was still fighting it. Uh, but now um, I can say 
that I, w- I would say God is using it. And I would say that I think I have a g- much greater compassion for people, which is the complete opposite of what you have when you're in pain. When you're in pain, you're selfish. You're hurting. Somebody help me. Somebody heal me. It's not fair. It happened to me. And then as that healing comes, you can really tell that the healing has taken place because instead of saying somebody help me, you're looking for somebody to help. And that's hmm. that's a place of compassion. So I am thankful. Truly, I can say I'm thankful for what happened to me. Um, I am absolutely thankful because like you're saying, you know, now when I meet with people and, you know, maybe they've been married 15 years, 20 years. Now they're going through a divorce. How am I supposed to do it? I've never experienced, I haven't even been married that long, but I can resonate with that pain and uh, I can share that compassion. So I don't know if that answered your question. I actually forgot the question was, but hopefully that addresses it. (laughs) It's, it's fine. The question doesn't matter, but I just am so grateful for all that you're sharing. Um, You're leading now just a great church in Brandon and a vision to multiply churches. But there was a part of your story that stood out to me where you were kind of mentored by a local church in Winnipeg. Can you just Mm -hmm. tell me about uh, that pastor, about that time um, in your journey before you launched out and began to lead a church? Just you had this moment and a real sending from a place. Can you describe that church and that experience? Absolutely, yeah. So I, I, was, I was called to plant a church in 2012, and I had no idea what to do. And the church that I was a part of and grew up in is an amazing church, but didn't have a church planting mission or a vision or an incubator for church planters. So um, I really didn't need at the time somebody who had planted a church recently and knew what it was about to start from scratch because I had no idea how to do that. And uh, by, by God's grace, I uh, developed uh, somewhat of a relationship with a pastor in Winnipeg. Shout out to Pastor Andaza at Joy Fountain Church in Winnipeg. And he, he really took me under his wing and he saw um, my potential and he saw my gifting for what it was, not for whatever type of box somebody else might have wanted hmm. to fit it in. And so he invited me to be part of his church. And it took some humility for me because the church was quite small. It was about, you know, 40 people or so. And the youth group I grew up in was, you know, five times the size of that. So I had to swallow my pride a little bit and, and recognize that this was somebody that God was bringing into my life for a purpose. And, um, you know, he, he took me in, mentored me, allowed me to minister in his church so I could use my gift before it was ready to step out on its own. And uh, eventually, a couple of years later, he actually ordained me. Wow. And, um, you know, that had, that was actually a big question I'd had with God when he called me to plant a church. I was like, well, I'm not ordained. How would I even get ordained? You know, should I go through denominations, so on and so forth? Uh, but it turned out to be uh, quite an unexpected relationship that blossomed into uh, some spiritual fathering that, that made the difference. So, yeah, very thankful to him and to his church. I think what stood out to me about that story is I meet church leaders who are sometimes maybe a bit later on in years leading a church that's under 100, even under 50, and feeling like, oh, we might not have a part to play Mm. in a next wave of renewal of leaders. But when I hear your story, I think, man, that is one of the greatest needs is fathers who have ran the race, mothers who have ran the race. They'll say, hey, we're going to make space. We've earned the trust with our people. We're going to make space for someone's gifts to grow. And we're going to encourage and build into them. I just think, what was his name? Pastor Ndazi? Is that right? Ndaza, that's right. Ndaza? I mean, I just think that that is such an incredible picture and we just need more pastors like that. And, yeah. uh, but then also, you know, for leaders more like our age, Ben, like people like you willing to go, Hey, 
I, I understand that before I step out, I want to have a place to grow. And I just love that part of your story. Okay. So then walk mm-hmm. us through going from, um, you're, you're feeling this call, you're in Winnipeg and you're making sense of it. Uh, you're at this church, getting some opportunities, getting some reps, and then walk us from there into where you guys are at today. Yeah. So that was 20, 2012 is when I was like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm clear I need to plan a church and I was clear it needed to be, needed to be in Brandon. Um, and, uh, so then, uh, you know, part of Joe Fountain Church with Pastor Rendeza and serving there. And I, I want to be clear, I actually didn't do much preaching there. I just kind of did whatever odd jobs, uh, they asked of me and, you know, sticking around. I knew I needed a place to be and, and, uh, just from past experience, I knew spiritual covering was important. And I knew step, mm. not stepping out before God was, you know, highlighting that time was important. And I also knew that, you know, Jesus grew in favor with God and man. So I knew I had favor with God because I had the calling, but I knew I needed an actual pastor to say, somebody in authority, somebody with, you know, some spiritual leadership to say, okay, I am now releasing you into that. So that was a mm. big desire of mine. I wanted to be released into ministry. Wow. I just step out into ministry. Ben, do you mind if we park there for a second? Sorry to sure. interrupt you, but that where did that conviction come? I just wonder, I'd love to know more about where that conviction came and and what you think, like, is it, do you feel like perhaps there's a lot of young leaders feeling called, they feel called in the heart, but maybe stepping out without that covering? And I just love to hear you speak that a little bit, because as you're saying that, it makes me wonder, okay, where does this conviction come from? And you know, I'd love to hear more just what you think about that. It's a great question. And I think, um, oh man, I'd like, I so many thoughts going through my head because I, cause now I look back and I'm, I, I'm realizing how God taught me by the time I wasn't really thinking about it. Hmm. I was just like, this feels wrong. This feels right. You know? Yeah. So, um, but if I look back, I would say a lot of it had to do with growing up without a dad actually. And I had tasted, um, being an orphan and I had felt what it's like to be out there by yourself. And I think when it came to ministry, um, I had a value for not going that road. And, uh, I will say this, I actually think, um, that God uses orphans because they understand the pain of being an orphan and they felt the warnings of being an orphan and you don't want to go back there. And, uh, so, so I just knew it wasn't going to go well if I was out there by myself. And I knew I understood spiritual authority and I understood that if I go out there without a covering, I am subject to the attacks of demons and there's nobody covering me. And when I am, because the challenges inevitably will come and I understood when the challenges are there, the devil would use the accusation of rebellion against me. Hmm. And he would say to me, you, nobody ever sent you out. You stepped out prematurely. So you are now suffering these attacks and these challenges and these setbacks because you stepped out on your own. And I understood that that was the accusation he would use against me. So um, everybody who knows me understands that I don't like waiting. You know, I like to go. <laughs> I want to go right now. You know, that's what I want to do. But because of that uh, conviction, I decided, you know what, God, if you want to send me out there and this is the right time, then you're going to have to put somebody there and you're going to have to make them send me out. Um, and that's exactly what happened. So where does the conviction come from? I think there was just an understanding that um, spiritual orphanhood is real 
And also I had been, because I've been part of a successful church, I had had the experience of watching a lot of ministry ventures crash. Hmm. And um, I did not want to be a mediocre minister. That was the last thing I wanted to do. So I wanted to do it right. And I wanted to, to make sure it was successful. And so to young leaders who, you know, really want to step out, I would say, do you want to make sure that what God's called you to do will happen? And if that's the case, you have got to get under authority and stay under authority until God gives you your own authority. Hmm. Oh, thanks for sharing that, dude. Um, okay, so then bring us back into the story. So uh, I can't remember where we were in the timeline, but you're at this church because you felt the call. And then how did you find yourself landing on planting in Brandon? Because you were in Winnipeg at the time. How did you make the pivot from Winnipeg to Brandon? Yeah, so when we were looking for a place to plant, uh, Brandon was the only place that came to my mind. I lived in Calgary. I grew up in Winnipeg. But this place called Brandon that I spent very little time in, I uh, drove through mostly, was where I felt God uh, leading us to plant a church. And so we drove there a few times over the summer just trying to see if this was a stupid idea. It was actually God. And, and it was a stupid idea, but it was also God. So, <laughs> so we, we gave in to that. And, uh, and I knew that's where I wanted to go. And, and Pastor Ndaza knew that as well from the beginning. So, um, so then, you know, he mentored me. And, and at the time, we would come to Brandon, even while living in Winnipeg, and do prayer meetings. Um, and we did that for several months. We'd drive out, drive the two-and-a-half-hour drive, Rent, uh, rent a little basement, pray, 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 get back in the car and drive home. And, and who's coming to these prayer meetings at that time? Uh, you know, friends of mine, because a little background to that is three years before that, uh, before being called to Planet Church, God asked me to start a prayer meeting that was going to pray for Winnipeg, pray for the young generation of Winnipeg and pray for revival in Winnipeg. That was my first introduction to ministry. So uh, prayer was basically about all that I knew. And I'd seen God move through prayer. So I figured we don't have any money. We don't know how, don't have a building. Don't know how to reach out. Not, not great evangelists. So what do we know how to do? We know how to pray. And we know that if we pray, eventually the next step will make itself plain. So, um, we would drive out to Brandon, even while living in Winnipeg, maybe seven of us, 10 of us, sometimes 12, 13, 14 people, uh, all of us from Winnipeg. Nobody actually lived in Brandon. And, uh, we would pray, you know, sow our spiritual seed, get back in the car and drive back. And then eventually Pastor Ndaza felt it was time to, to send, send us out and send me out. And I'll say this too, you know, he didn't feel that I was ready to be ordained. Uh, but he felt that the marks of ministry were already there and that that was enough for me to get started. And then over a process of time, then the ordination period would come. Hmm. And I have to really give him a shout out because I do think that for young leaders, there is that patience, you know, let the, let the spiritual authority send you out. But I do think it's rare to find spiritual fathers, spiritual mentors who can say, I'm going to make room for you. I'm even going to somewhat send you out while supervising you hmm. um, and allow you to get started. And then as time rolls around, then we'll give you the official seal of ordination. And, and he was, he just had that insight to do that. That's really cool. 
Hey, we'll jump back in in just a second to our conversation with Ben, but I want to take a moment and just really thank Compassion Canada for their partnership on this podcast. One of the things that I love about Compassion is the way in which they're impacting lives around the world is in partnership with the local church. You probably know this, but Compassion's one of the leading child development organizations. They've partnered with local churches in 25 countries to end poverty in the lives of children and their families. And as they're working with churches around the world to help these children and families, they want to work with churches is in Canada as well. I've been really impacted personally by my friendship with the team at Compassion, and I know that they're here to work with churches across Canada. So if you've got questions about how you can respond to needs in the lives of children around the world, please do not hesitate to reach out to the team at Compassion Canada. They've recently started a campaign called We Rise as One, which is all about responding to children who've been specifically affected by the global pandemic. COVID-19 has impacted life in Canada, and we realize that, but its impact on the development world around the world is catastrophic and now is a moment for us to find out more about how we can help so so grateful for the help of the team at compassion to bring attention to that and give us actionable steps to respond okay let's jump back into our conversation with ben so tell me a bit about these prayer meetings and so i mean i think we all depending on our upbringing have different sort of pictures that come to mind you know a prayer meeting could seem really quiet could seem like a yeah. few people in a circle maybe if you're from pentecostal context sounds really loud yeah. tell me a bit about these prayer meetings that especially these ones that are happening in brandon and how that began to grow and shape the culture of the church that you're leading now thank you for asking yeah so we uh the way the prayer meetings will go we, we come get together a little bit of worship uh maybe a song or two and then we just pray in the holy ghost for as long as it takes. Can you, tra- can you translate that for those that don't, <laughs> don't, don't speak the, the that way? charismatics um, Yeah, we just pray in tongues and everybody prays in tongues and we all just get going until, uh, until the Holy Spirit speaks into our direction. And that is the way we've always done it and that's the way we still do it. Um, even if I have a word, even if I have a direction, we all have learned to put that aside and then we start praying in the Holy Spirit, praying in tongues and... Um, and then the Holy Spirit basically takes over from that point. And a lot of times mm. I found that if I, if I do that, that gives me context for whatever impression I had before. And um, I, I'm huge on praying in tongues. And I know people who do quite well without it. And I'm like, you must be a super Christian. Like, because <laughs> if I didn't have this thing, I'd be done. So anyway, so that's how uh, our prayer meetings uh, went. We would drive out here praying in tongues. And then God would give prophetic words. We would speak those prophetic words, and then we would agree on those prophetic words. And then uh, once we felt it was done, then uh, pack it up and go home. And that's effectively how we still pray today. Ben, if if there's people listening and they're like, "That is a different world than I know," you know, maybe they've n- they've never heard of praying in tongues or. They've heard it, but it was in a negative context, or maybe they've heard about it really positively, but it's been something that, you know, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. what's the baby step? Not just, I'm not, not, a, not necessarily about even praying in tongues, but just like that kind of prayer meeting or mm-hmm. that kind of posture ministry says, we want to create a space corporately mm-hmm. where we're letting the Holy Spirit lead. Like, cause I think that's kind of the principle I'm hearing is like, we gather together with all of our ideas, but then we lay them down That's right. and we're trying to seek this. And it's a pretty wild thing to think about corporately allowing the spirit to lead and other denominations throughout church history have had a similar conviction expressed in different ways but for somebody being like hey i have no i've never experienced anything like that what would be like the baby step to be able to begin to engage in prayer or ministry in a way that's dependent on the spirit that's a great question Uh, i would say one word hunger i would say if you want it uh 
take off all the preconceived notions of what it is and what it means and uh, take your Bible and spend time with God and just say, God, I want this. I see it in the book of Acts. I see it in first Corinthians. I see all this stuff. If I'm being totally honest, I'm not seeing it in my life, but I want to. And instead of explaining it away, I'm going to ask you to give this to me. And, you know, as long as it takes, do that. And, I, and I'll just say this, too. I grew up in a church in an environment that believed in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and into the power of the Holy Spirit and so on and so forth. And whose whose definition of being filled with the Holy Spirit would have been speaking in tongues. But I didn't have a lot of experience with it personally till I was in a position where I really needed the power of the Holy Spirit. And so hmm. we did not know how to plan a church. That's why we were praying. We did not have a building. That's why we were praying. We didn't know anybody in the city. We didn't have any money. Um, like we had nothing except this hunger for God. And so we had to start there. And um, I'm really thankful that we did that because looking back now, um, God has told us to do much crazier things than planting a church in Brandon. And because we learned to recognize the voice early on and to recognize his power early on, that is what still allows us to continue to follow that same voice today. So where do you start? Hunger. Just be yeah. hungry for it. And uh, God will find you. He knows your address. <laughs> and one of the things I know you're hungry for is, is renewal in our country, is revival. Can you speak to that passion, that, that, that dream you have in your heart to see Canada experience renewal? Yeah. Um, well, it's exactly that. I, I am I'm passionate about that. And I wouldn't... Honestly, I wouldn't use the word renewal because I think it's been so long um, hmm. that <laughs> even maybe revival isn't the right word. I think we need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And uh, my personal conviction is that every generation needs that. Every generation needs its own outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So um, we have to get hungry and then we have to put the boxes aside and we have to put the traditions aside. We have to put what we know aside. Uh, people like yourself and myself with somewhat of a platform need to lead those who are following us into that hunger for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we start where everybody else started, which is the book of Acts. Now, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit came down, the Holy Spirit came down, and the church was never the same. And in our generation, we have unique challenges, um, and we need the power of the Holy Spirit for our unique time. Um, and, uh, you know, when the Holy Spirit came down, Peter was never the same, John was never the same, James was never the same, and then the world was never the same. And we all need that ourselves, too. So I've, I've read about pretty much any revival that's ever happened. Um, literally, like I am, I, yeah, at this point, I think I'm just repeating old books that I've read. Um, just to kind of study how it happens and, and, and what it looks like. And it's been different every time. The, the precursors is always prayer. We know that that needs to happen, but the way it actually looks is different every time. So, hmm. um, that's why we need our own outpouring in this generation. Wow. I love how you frame that. I, we had John Tyson on the podcast a while ago, and I don't know if it was on our conversation for, with the podcast or it was one of his other, it was maybe the conversation we had after recording, but he talked about some of the common denominators in revivals and renewals, prayer, uh, move the Holy Spirit, renewed conviction. But then the thing that stood out to me was how different, even theologically different revivals have been in history. You know what I mean? Like. Right whether it's the Wesleyan or the reformed revivals and you go, these are right. like massively different theological camps. Yes. And so then it leads you to conclude that God isn't just pouring out on right theology. That's right. Absolutely. Which, you know, and we value theology. Like, listen, I'm not, we're not downplaying it, but like there's something 
it's just that's just been really rattling rattling me just realizing like just how unique what he does in a time and it seems as if the principles of renewal or revival or whatever word we use in outpouring uh is is something that doesn't downplay good theology but it's not a result of just believing the right things that's wonderful that's a great way to put it because it means that um you don't have to get it all right and just because that's how those guys did it doesn't mean that's the way you have to do it and it's awesome you know we don't have to dress up in suits and and you know have sweaty meetings to to see god move we don't need the tent revivals to come back and stuff. Now, now God is going to be moving, pouring our spirit through YouTube and Zoom with people wearing Vans and Nikes. You know, that, that's what's going to happen now um, as long as the vessel is available. So I love that. And so I read a lot of that stuff. But my prayer is always, God, do it your way today. Hmm. And, and I think, too, that that is a very liberating thing that, you know, anybody listening to this, do I have to read about all those revivals? Maybe you don't, but maybe you, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Um, if the hunger is there, God will do it. And I love the point that you made about theology because one of the, the, the great awakening started with Jonathan Edwards and his crew. Um, and those guys were probably the most, you know, in today's standards, pretty stuffy people, right? Like <laughs> not the types of people you think are going to have a great move of God. And, uh, and they did. And God, did, and that, that started something and that impacted Wesley as well. And uh, then you have the Azusa Street Revival, which was insanity. Compared to the Edwards Revival, I mean, Azusa was absolute insanity. So uh, the common denominator is they were all hungry for God and, and God hmm. answered. Hmm. I love that you mentioned the Azusa Street Revival because it's been on my heart. Um, we're recording this, not knowing exactly when this will be released, but we're recording this in the midst of, um, well, a few weeks ago. Um, George Floyd, the video went out of George Floyd with a white police officer with his knee on his neck and crying out, I can't breathe and, and then passing away and that becoming a rallying cry for awakening of justice and um, awareness around racial injustice, particularly with black lives and uh, just a profound move. And then I keep thinking in this time about how God poured out his spirit um, on a black man Mm. And that led to one of the biggest revivals in history. Wondering if you would be up for taking some time just to help serve me as a as a white pastor, just as I'm trying to make sense of the conversation going on going on around me right now. Are you up for that? Absolutely. How are you making sense of the times we're in? You know, how are mm -hmm. you? How are you? Maybe actually the question I'll start with: How how are you experiencing it personally? Mm -hmm. It's a good question. And before I forget, I just want to touch on the whole Azusa thing that God did use William Seymour, a one-eyed black man, descendant of slaves. But what I love about Seymour's story was that this was a man who had no bitterness. Hmm. Zero bitterness. I mean, I, I just, I think last year I read a, a book. Um, actually, uh, Pastor Brent Cantalon, your father-in-law, recommended this book to me. Shout out, um, Pops in Law. Yeah, sh shout out, <laughs> absolutely. And uh, Pastor Brent had said, hey, you know, have you read... Uh, this book in Azusa, and I was like, no, but I, I kind of gave him the the impression of like, I read a lot of books on Azusa Street, I don't need one more. But he's like, no, 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 listen, you, you have this one is different, like you have to read this one. And so I took him up on it, and I bought it, and it was different, um, because it really described Seymour's background and the, the type of environment he would have grown up in. That man should have been the most bitter man, you know, around. But he had no bitterness, and he had no anger. Uh, to the degree that he heard about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and he knew he needed more 
And so he would sit outside uh, because they wouldn't let him into the, cl- the Bible school because he was oh. black. So he would sit outside and listen at the door. That, that's as close as they, as they would allow him to get. While this white teacher taught white students and the, the, the black student, who isn't even really a student, was allowed to sit at the door and listen. Well, how many people do you know today that would humble themselves so low? You know, that would have that kind of hunger that whatever it takes, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go through all of this humiliation because I want this that bad. And now it feels like, oh, got to be careful here. Um, now it feels like what we want is uh, payback. And we have to be sure that justice doesn't equal vengeance. We have to go after justice, but we can't go after vengeance. And I don't expect anybody who's not a Christian to do that. I think if you're not a believer in Jesus and your heart has not been transformed, listen, I understand why you want vengeance. You know, I watched uh, George Floyd's murder and I call it a murder. I watched it and I was angry. And I would say, you know, in some private conversations, I've uh, intimated some non-pastoral opinions about what should happen with those officers. I love that line. (laughs) Some non-pastoral language. That's right. Yeah. So, um, so I get that. And I honestly, uh, part of me would say, I I can say a part of me is vengeful uh, if I let myself go there. But as a believer in Jesus, I now have a higher standard. And I think what God has been impressing upon me is you can be angry at the injustice but to have any sense of judgment against that police officer is non-Christian. So I, I think as believers, as, as black believers, as African believers, and I could talk to you for a long time about uh, racist experiences I've had that have struck fear in my heart. I can talk to you about prejudiced Christians for a long time. We could have that discussion. Um, I do have those experiences as well. But as believers... We are called to heal. And justice is about reconciliation. Justice mm. is about healing. Vengeance is about payback. It's about retribution. So um, when I think about William Seymour, I think it's an apt example to pull from the pages of history because his humility and his hunger to sit at that door, for them to tell him you can't come in, but he still had value for what they were teaching, even though they were clearly racist, prejudiced people. I think that's the only way that the Azusa Street, uh, they, they set a revival, they said of it that the color lines were, were erased in the blood. Um, that's what they say about the Azusa Street revival. I think the only way that that could have happened was because you had somebody leading it who had every right to be angry, to be bitter, and to be vengeful, who said, no, I want God, and I want what God wants more than I want my payback. And so because of that, black, white, Chinese, Mexican, uh, Americans to all over the world were all able to experience this outpouring. And still to this day, the Pentecostal movement is still one of the fastest growing movements in the world. That's 114 years ago. So, um, you know, timing is timing is important. And, you know, the right time to maybe say this wasn't right after George Floyd was murdered. You know, I don't think anybody would appreciate that. But as believers, I think the tone and the conversation is now changing to what do we do about it? And I think what we do about it has to start with the example of uh, William Seymour. And it has to start with, yes, there are prejudiced people in the church. It is true. Yes, there may be even be racist people in the church. 
But if we can begin to see each other as brothers and sisters and start there, um, I think that we can be the voice of healing. What are some of the steps that church leaders can take to help lead and also participate in a path of reconciliation? You know, as, uh, as cliche as they may sound, I think it starts with a conversation. I think is you got to find somebody, a person of color, black person, African, and have a conversation. Because one of the things that I've been saying anytime anybody's asking a question like that is uh, people who are prejudiced, people who are racist will see all black people as the same. Hmm. And so, you know, I'm from Rwanda. I have a coworker. She's from Nigeria. I have some friends, you know, they're African-American. We're not all the same type of black person, you know, just like you got your Ukrainians and your Dutch and your, you know, whatever. Uh, all black people are not the same. And so when I meet somebody who's Nigerian, I don't immediately have the connection as in, oh, we're exactly the same person. I have to get to know them through conversation just as much as I would with you. Um, but uh, people who are prejudiced look at us all the same. And so mm. when it comes to healing the prejudice, the same thing works where we think we can treat them all the same and the same, the same healing can be applied equally or the same um, reconciliation can be applied equally, which it really can't because I'm very aware that I'm blessed to live in Canada and we don't have the same history. Africans Africans in Canada don't have the same history as African-Americans do because the slave trade and slavery, I mean, the way it impacted America was quite different than the way it impacted Canada. And so that's why I think it has to begin with a conversation because the other thing is I'm a, I'm a first-generation African in Canada. Uh, I, I don't have parents and grandparents who are raised in Canada. I don't have that. So I'm going to have a vastly different perspective than somebody who wasn't a refugee, who wasn't an immigrant, um, would have. And so uh, we can all have a very powerful effect if we have conversations with the people of color around us and we learn their story and we learn how they see things. And then mm. we begin to make room for that interpretation. Uh, that alone, I think, will go a long way, especially for uh, churches. Wow, that's so helpful. That's so helpful. And this sounds probably like a way too specific question, but I just want to help people listening. What does that conversation sound like? What are some of those first questions to ask? You know. Um, I think because honestly, I think it's intimidating for people to say, I don't know how to enter into this. And what I have found in the last couple of weeks is like, just by trying to lean in the direction of what you described, it's like, once you take that first step, it begins to move. You can find new avenues and ways to engage, but that first step can feel really intimidating. And so I want to kind of help remove some of those barriers. So just talk to me like what that could sound like to call a friend, or maybe you may like, I don't have a person of color in my life that I could call even a friend. What does that look like to initiate? And what are some of those questions that could be helpful to begin those mm -hmm. conversations? That's a great question. What kind of questions people should ask? And I think that um, part of the reaction, especially on social media, has made people intimidated. Like, what do I say? You know, I don't even want to ask because I don't want to offend. And so I think the way you asked it is perfect. You know, uh, you go to a person of color and say, you know, what should I be asking? Um, what is different for you that I would not even consider to be different? So for example, for me, uh, there's a neighborhood here in Brandon that when I first moved here, I would take a walk in and I would get stared at because black people did not take walks in that neighborhood. So um, 
a person who's not black would never have that experience because I had that experience based on my skin color. So, but you, if you're my friend and you're asking me, you would not know that. You wouldn't know right. to ask me that. But if you ask me and you say, what's different for you that I would never think of? I can tell you, oh, walking down the street is different. Oh, that's so you know, helpful. Walking into Starbucks, people stare at me longer than they stare at you. Um, my wife is white, and so we get stared at a lot. But the difference is she doesn't even recognize the staring. Um, but I do because we mm. have different experiences. So I think if you start there, um, it opens up the conversation to all kinds of beautiful things. And then, you know, if you and I go off to Starbucks, you're conscious of I'm not experiencing what he's experiencing. And, and that's a great place to start. Hmm. That's so helpful. That's so helpful. And one of the things I know for you, you were saying earlier, there's a lot of different resources and helpful voices in this conversation. But one thing you feel particularly uh, called to individually is to talk about like a spiritual response as well. Uh, can you can you tell me what you mean by that? This idea of like, hey, there's different responses and those are important, but there's also a spiritual response as followers of Jesus. I would just love to hear you unpack that a little bit. Yes, thank you. Yeah, you know, I start with, uh, what is the devil trying to do right now? The Word of God teaches us that the devil is a strategist. I think that that is so important to remember is that he's not this you know, random arsonist. He's a strategist. And so when something happens and you can see strife and anger, then you know that the devil is likely has orchestrated something to, is, to instigate that. And so when it comes to the current conversation, I think we have to be wary of division. I think we have to look at our differences, but don't allow our differences to drive us to division. And I am a pastor, a black pastor, an African pastor. I wasn't even born in this nation, but my church is predominantly white Canadians. So if I allow in my heart the division to become so pronounced that they see themselves as different than me, or I see myself as different than them. Now, these spiritual children that God has given me, I am creating a division there hmm. uh, for the sake of emphasizing my difference. So that is what I believe that the enemy is trying to do. He's trying to make it so we got white Christians and we got black Christians. And of course, we have white Christians and black Christians. But first, we're all Christians. Hmm. And that's where we have to start. So from a spiritual perspective, uh, Ephesians 2 says that Jesus broke down the dividing wall and all its hostility. Oh my gosh, I love that verse right now. It's my favorite verse. He says he broke down the dividing wall and all hostility, and he's specifically talking about races, Jews and Gentiles. Specifically, it, it is an anti-racist verse. You know, it's saying that Jesus broke down the dividing wall, and that is why there is neither Jew nor Gentile. That is the only reason. It's not because we became better people. It's not because Christians at heart, you know, people at heart are good. No, no. It, it took literally an act of warfare against the devil, the death of the Son of God. That's what it took to erase the difference spiritually between Jews and Gentiles. Well, if that's what it took back then, Jesus going to the cross, that's what it's going to take today. And so that encourages me because that victory has already been won. Hmm. And now what we need to do is we need to go to prayer and exercise spiritual authority. And then now we can begin to love and heal uh, hmm. as communities. Hmm. I think what stands out to me as I hear you sharing that is not an invitation to ignore those things, even as they come to mind, but mm -hmm. to identify um, 
that out in front of that revelation or those ideas is a, is a path of healing and restoration Absolutely. that's practical, like the conversations we described, but deeply spiritual. And I just want to just chat a little longer about that work of prayer. Like, what does it mean in this time for church leaders to have an awakening of prayer? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Honestly, uh, we've been praying here for, for pastors all across Canada since uh, the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, became a reality for us here in Canada back in February, March. We've been praying and praying and praying for churches in Canada. And, you know, one of the things that we've been praying is that God would begin a massive prayer movement led by pastors. Uh, what I feel is that unless pastors lead the charge in prayer, the church will never be a praying church. Hmm. That is my conviction. And so instead of, you know, trying to do these massive prayer gatherings, we've just been praying for pastors in Canada and saying, God, Pastors love you. They want to do what's best. Now we're going to pray that whatever stops them from praying, whatever distractions the enemy is trying to bring, that God, you would erase all that and that they would feel if this is truly a call from God for pastors to lead the charge in prayer, God, that they would be convinced of that and that they would heed that call and that they would pursue that. Because if pastors begin to pray, churches will begin to pray. And the church begins to pray, it is game over. Game well, I'm just so thankful for Ben for sharing his story and his wisdom and experience with us today. If you found this episode helpful to where you're at as a leader, please, on whatever platform you're on, give us a quick review or share this podcast with someone you know who you would feel would benefit from hearing these types of conversations. It goes a long way. And for those given that love on Instagram, the reshare and the feedback, it means a lot to us and the team. So thanks for jumping in and spreading the word. As always, some of our favorite moments from this interview are available on our blog, on Instagram and our YouTube channels in video format. And if you want to check out some important links, anything he referenced, some of the sound bites and other notes like that, you can find them on ccln.ca. Hey, one thing I wanted to mention is Ben was really impacted and supported by ARC, which is a church planning organization that started in the States and has some dynamic work across Canada. And they have a conference tomorrow, June 23rd, and it's free and it's online. So I thought I'd mention it to you. You can find all the details at arcchurches.ca. I want to thank our friends at Briarcrest again for all their help in the midst of this pandemic. The education world has shifted dramatically and our partners at Briarcrest have adapted their program so they can continue to serve emerging leaders like you and other students coming from around the world. And so to find out more about their programs, check them out at briarcrestcollege.ca. Okay, before we sign off, let me just give you a sneak peek at next week. Our guest is Daniel M. Daniel M. is the Senior Associate Pastor at Beulah Alliance Church in Edmonton, Alberta. We talked a lot about the transition that they are in the middle of senior leadership shifting there. It's a really important conversation that we're having. He's pastored in Vancouver, in Ottawa, in Montreal, in Korea, in Nashville. He did a lot of work with Ed Stetzer and the team at Lifeway. And in our conversation, Daniel brought a ton of wealth and wisdom. I'm excited for you to hear it. And that's all coming up next week. Okay. Thanks for being with us today. We'll see you soon.